Well, let's pray. Father, we're glad for this time. We recognize that it is precious for us to unite together and meet around your word. Uh, Not because of anything mystical, but because you um, have authored this word for us. And so we get to hear from you, which is the greatest privilege that humans can have. So we pray that this time will will be indeed fruitful and helpful uh, and productive and uh, even life-changing for us here in the next uh, few moments. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, and you all should... Please go with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And um, I forgot to look up the page number. So what page are we going to find Isaiah 6 on if you're using one of the Bibles from this room? Somebody? 485. 485, thank you. So page 485 if you're using one of the Bibles uh, from the room here. Otherwise, the front of your Bible should have a table of contents. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. And we're going to be looking at chapter 6, 7, and 8 mainly here tonight before we break into small groups and talk through a few things. For those of us, uh, and this probably is all of us, who live in this part of the world, so southern, southeastern America... There is one really great blessing that comes along with living in a place in the world like this. Uh, And there's also a really, uh, I would think, a great danger. The blessing is that living in this part of the world, it is relatively easy to become a Christian. So there are a number of churches and schools and believers and people who know the Bible who can help you understand what it means to follow Jesus and to give your life to Him. You can find those things in this part of the world as easily as you can find them really anywhere else in the world. So people who have done research about these things have actually said that the Chattanooga area is, uh, they've called it the most Bible-minded area or city or town in America. So... People in this part of the world, people in this part of the country at least, uh, know more and apparently think more about the Bible than anywhere else in the world. And you you and I live in that part of the world. So that that would be a blessing in the fact that uh, it's very easy for you, for us, for people here to become a Christian or to know about Christianity. The danger is that it's then also very easy, very easy to become a fake Christian. Or to fake at being a Christian. So just to pretend like you are, because it seems like everybody else is. And religion kind of works that way in much of the world today, but also throughout history. So, for example, if you had been born in a part of the world, and keep in mind, you can't help where you were born. So so if you were born in a part of the world that was predominantly Muslim, Islamic, okay, it would be very easy in a context like that for you to practice Islam and and to say, I'm a Muslim. 
I follow Allah and I follow the teachings of Muhammad. And it would be very difficult then for you to become a Christian or to be really anything other than Islamic. So some of it just depends on where you're born, and I get you can't help where you are born. But it would also be easy if you lived in an Islamic context for you just to fake being a Muslim. Like just to say that you are because it's easy to say that you are. Does everybody kind of get how that works? So there's, there's danger for us here, not in that it's hard to become a Christian, but that, that it's really easy just to pretend like you and I are Christians and maybe not have ever actually met Jesus at all. And I suspect that Jerusalem, in the time that Isaiah wrote, so about 700 B.C., was probably much like ours. It was probably very easy for people in, in Jerusalem to just assume that they were right with God. Because most people in Jerusalem would have grown up from childhood hearing the Scriptures and, and knowing the tales of Yahweh the Lord and hearing about creation and hearing about the Exodus and knowing all that God had done for them as a nation, for their people in times past. And so they, in a sense, were born into a, a religious uh, Jewish God-following family, even if they hadn't actually encountered him for themselves. So, your beliefs, our beliefs, everybody's beliefs are shaped uh, by what their surroundings are, what your experiences are. You think what you think about God just because you live in this part of the world. You grew up in the family that you did. You attend the school that you do. You are here in this gathering tonight, most of you, because this is just what you do on a weekly basis. And, this, and, and God is something that you hear about uh, quite often. But that is not enough for you to have an actual, genuine, real-life relationship with Him. Each person must have a personal encounter with God in order to truly belong to Him. And so tonight, we're going to look at Isaiah 6, and we're going to see God actually show Himself on a personal level to Isaiah. And when He showed Himself on a personal level to Isaiah, He didn't do it just for Isaiah's benefit. He did it for the benefit of everybody that Isaiah would speak to or would reach through his writings even. And so thus far we've looked in Isaiah chapter 1 through 5. Uh, we've seen and heard God call out the nation of Israel. What has God mainly noticed about Israel up to this point in Isaiah? What has God had to say about them? Good things, bad things? Yeah, pretty bad, not good. Uh, as a nation, they're very rebellious, aren't they? And so God is calling them out for, for his rebellion. Has God been uh, patient with them though? Right? He hasn't just wiped them off the face of the map. Instead, he's calling them back to himself. Now, he has promised what, though? If they don't turn back to him, what's going to happen to them as a nation? They're going to experience his, yeah, his wrath, his anger, his judgment, his, his punishment uh, towards their sin. And so, so God's calling them to repent, to turn back to him. Uh, and he, and he, he's done that. Uh, to the nation as a whole, and he'll, he'll continue to do that. But tonight we're going to see him get down kind of on a personal level with Isaiah. And when it happens for Isaiah, Isaiah's mission all of a sudden becomes very clear. And like I said, Isaiah wasn't meant to experience this for himself. He was to announce it. So God shows himself to be personal, and he does it in about three ways in these chapters we're going to look at. So you should have a bulletin uh, to fill in some blanks as we go. So you'll see these main points as I touch on them hopefully quickly. And then, uh, and then as you take notes, 
keep these with you and take them to your small groups when we break up and meet separately here very soon. Um, and, and be able to discuss them and, 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 and ask questions about them and, um, and talk about these with your leader. Three ways God shows himself to be personal in these three chapters. The first way is simply the way that he does it with Isaiah. So number one, God with Isaiah. So look at Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. Maybe you're not used to looking at a Bible. Uh, the big bold numbers are the chapter numbers, and the little small numbers that are kind of in between all the sentences, those are verses. So if I talk about chapters and verses, uh, that's kind of how you can follow along there. So chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So the first thing that Isaiah sees as God shows up there with him you can write this in your blanks. Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord. Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord. So Isaiah is a prophet in the country of Judah, in the nation of Jerusalem. And if you go back to chapter 1, you can see all the names of the kings who ruled when Isaiah was speaking. One of them was King Uzziah. Well, what happens in chapter 6 and verse 1? King Uzziah what? What does it say? He died. And so there was going to be another human king after him. But when King Uzziah dies, Isaiah saw somebody else on a throne. Who did he see on the throne? The Lord. The Lord. And so there's a king who rules over all other kings. Human kings die. There's one who's on the throne who never dies. He saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He's high and lifted up. His glory fills the temple. In fact, His glory doesn't just fill the whole temple, but according to verse 3, what is full of His glory? The whole earth is full of the glory of the Lord. So Isaiah gets a glimpse of this God that he has talked about up to this point, and he sees Him, as it were, face to face. And he sees His holiness and he sees his glory, he sees his power as the foundations shake, and as the house is filled with smoke. Just like when, when the Lord filled the tabernacle that Moses built, it was filled with smoke. And so now this temple also is filled with smoke. So Isaiah first sees the glory of the Lord. The second thing that Isaiah sees, or notices, or experiences, is the lostness of man. The lostness of of man. So verse 5, Isaiah sees all this and here's what he says. He's and I said, "Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord of hosts. It's interesting that Isaiah says, woe is me, because if you go back to where we looked at chapter 5 last week, just, just look back, for example, at chapter 5 and, and verse 20 and 21 and 22. This is just a small example. We could go to lots of others. But in Isaiah 5, 20 and 21 and 22, what is Isaiah saying continually throughout those verses? Woe to those. Yeah, woe to others. So woe would be like his lament. He's, he's sad for their situation because he recognizes how sinful they are. So woe to others. And yet in chapter 6 and verse 5, he's there before the Lord. And what does he say? Yeah, woe is me. So he's lamenting his own state before the Lord. What has he seen about God? God is what? Glorious and holy. So then what does he recognize about himself? That he is very unholy. He is, as he says, lost. I'm unclean. My lips are unclean. So his, his words, all the people have unclean lips. He dwells in the midst of those people. So he sees God's glory and it causes him to recognize his own lostness. And here's the third thing that he encounters. The atonement for sin. The atonement for sin. So verse 6. Then one of the seraphim, one of these angelic creatures, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Now let's linger here for just a second and think about what all this represents. If the Lord is holy and Isaiah is unholy, if Isaiah remains unholy, can he stay in the presence of God? No, he can't. Can Isaiah make himself holy before God? No, he can't. He needs atonement. Now, what, what do we mean by atonement? Someone help, help define that important word? Where else in the Bible maybe have we talked about that, seen that, read that? How, how can we define atonement? Anybody know? Okay, uh, it's related to, to the sacrifices that Israel was commanded to offer, uh, especially back in the book of, book of Leviticus, right? All these uh, sacrifices are commanded, and so blood had to be spilled because blood was the one thing that could cover for sin. And so these sacrifices represented the uncleanness being dealt with very seriously so that the people could be clean. Death was the penalty for the uncleanness. And once the, once the blood was shed, the people could have atonement. They could have the right then to go before God and be clean. Well, the atonement here isn't really represented by death, is it? Not exactly, at least. Like, is Isaiah's blood shed? Do you notice anybody's blood being shed here? No, not really. You do notice, though, his, his, his being clean, right? They touch the, 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 his lips with the coal. And it's a picture of being purified, of being cleansed, of his sin being burnt away. And now it says, uh, in fact, the, the angel says to him, This has now touched your lips, so your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Well, if Isaiah now has no guilt and no sin, 
Can he now stand before God? Yes, he can. His sins have been atoned for. He recognized his lostness. He realized he couldn't save himself. Couldn't make himself holy. And so now he has been cleansed. His sins have been atoned for. And then the rest of chapter 6 then is his commission. So the fourth thing Isaiah experiences is, is the commission. He's given a job. He's given something to do. So verse 8, And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. So verse 9, The voice said, Go. And he tells him what to, to say to the people. Uh, Verse 9, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and and, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now this would sound kind of backwards, or does sound kind of backwards. What is God basically saying about Isaiah's mission? Go to the nation of Israel and preach to them But what? What kind of response is he going to get from the crowds? What is it? Yeah, a very negative response. Are people just going to turn to the Lord because of what Isaiah says? No, in fact, the opposite. It's as though their eyes are going to remain blind and their ears are going to remain deaf. Their understanding is going to be dull. It's not going to be there. And so so if you read the Gospels, Jesus actually quotes this passage here in Isaiah and explains to his disciples... This is what Isaiah talked about. This is why the crowds don't understand what I'm saying. Now, I I want us to think about uh, Isaiah's encounter and compare it to the encounter of every person who has ever genuinely come to the Lord. Okay, If you are a Christian, it is because you have had an experience like Isaiah's. You have seen God's glory. You have recognized that He is holy and you are not. And that you can't measure up to God in in your own strength, in your own ability. And so you need atonement to be made for you that you can't make for yourself. You need to be cleansed from your sins. And only what God has done through Christ when Jesus came and lived in your place and died in our place and rose from the dead and shed his his blood and then took his life up again, can you and I have salvation? That's the only way. So if your response to that is to trust Christ and turn from your sin and follow Him completely, you are a Christian. If you think you have come to God any other way on your own strength, uh, then then you have failed to understand what it means to actually come to God. Now, if you've experienced forgiveness of sins, has God also given you and I a, a commission? Has He given us a job to do? Are we also to speak His truth just like Isaiah is commissioned to do? Yes. Now, when we tell other people about Christ, do people just come to Jesus in droves? Not usually. At least that's not been my experience. It would be great if they do. Sometimes the Lord works in that way. But oftentimes we find, it, we find people not very eager to hear the gospel, don't we? And that was true in Isaiah's life, and it's a reality for most of us as well. Was it Isaiah's job to change people's minds, though? No, he was just to speak, right? Just be faithful. So God met with Isaiah on a personal level. That's number one. Number two, we see God with Israel. 
God with Israel. So not just one man, but the whole nation. So in chapter 7 and 8, there's a lot of uh, repetition. There's a lot of things that happen more than once. There's somewhat of a structure to it, so I've tried to give it to you there in your notes so you can kind of see how it breaks down. One of the main themes here is darkness. So you can see the darkness that Israel was experiencing. So look at chapter 7 and verse 1, and you kind of get a taste of all this. Chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, Ahaz was a king that came after Uzziah. So Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. In his days, Reason, king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. And when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Okay, let's summarize what's being said there. Uh, Israel is under attack, right? So write that in your notes. The reality of darkness is that there's an impending attack from Syria. And what is the response of Ahaz the king? What is he like emotionally? Yeah, he, he's shaking. Why would he shake? He's afraid. That's exactly right. He's scared. He's terrified. And so, verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son. And so, so God is sending Isaiah to the king to tell him, you don't have to be afraid of the king of Assyria, the king of Syria. Because even though there's a reality of darkness, Isaiah and his son are going to go to Ahaz with the message. And the message has a lot to do with, with the name of Isaiah's son. So, so there's probably a footnote in your Bible about the name of Isaiah's son, whose name is Shir Jashub, and that name basically means that there's a remnant. God is going to not allow Israel to be destroyed. God's going to save some of them. So in your notes, I would write this down. Talking about Israel's first son, there is a promise of a remnant. A remnant is, means a group of people who are kept alive who are saved at the end. All right? So Syria is going to come and attack Israel, but is Syria going to succeed in wiping them out? No, they're not. God's going to save a remnant. Uh, look, at, um, look at verse 5. So chapter 7, verse 5. Because Syria, with Ephraim and son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, let's go up to, against Judah and terrify it, let's conquer it for ourselves, set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it, because they say that, verse 7, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is reason, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. This people will be shattered, they will, their attack will not last. But God's not just going to send the son of Isaiah. He's going to send his own son. So look down at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign for the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I won't ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? 
Therefore, so here's what God's going to do to assure that his people will be rescued. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. And behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name, what? Emmanuel. Which means, based on what Noah read for us uh, from Matthew, Emmanuel means what? God with us. So again, God with the nation, God with Israel. So the sign of Emmanuel. So in your notes, you could write in that the virgin will conceive and will bear a son. Now this is interesting. When we read Isaiah chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago, we saw that who was God's son then? The nation, right? Israel is my son, God had said. But was Israel a successful son? No, they weren't an obedient son. So now God is going to send a son to be God with them. And as Matthew wrote, that is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. You get to chapter 8. And again, Isaiah is sent to Ahaz with a second son. And again, the son's name has significance. Look at verse 3. Isaiah says, I went to the prophetess, that would be his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So if any of you are, are thinking about what to name your children in the future, there's an idea. And his name uh, is a reference to wealth. So in your notes, you could write in that his second son is a promise of wealth. It's a promise of prosperity in the future. And so God is promising that his son will overcome all of Israel's Enemies, look at verse, at verse uh, 5. So chapter 8, verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over reason and, some, uh, and the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep onto Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings, and will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So God is even speaking to Israel's land and calling it Emmanuel, and saying, yes, these enemies are going to come upon you, but, verse 9, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. So these enemies of the Lord will be broken, they'll be shattered, the Lord says, Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. So this second promise of Emmanuel, you could write this down. This second promise of Emmanuel ensures that the enemies of the Lord will be shattered. So then, what was Israel to do with this darkness, with this king of Syria coming? And here's what the Lord says. Look at verse 12. This is the Lord's advice to them. Do not call conspiracy that this, all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, 
Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. If you go down to verse 20, he kind of finishes the thought there. Go down to verse 20. To the teaching, to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged. They will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So the Lord says, yes, right now your land is in darkness, but the command there, and you can write this in, is that they should fear the Lord rather than man. The king of Ahaz was wrong to fear. King Ahaz was wrong to fear the king of Assyria more than the Lord. But God was with his people. God was going to send a son to his people. And through that son, here's number three. Through that son, God was going to be with the nations. Not just one nation, Israel, but all the nations. So look at how this promise starts in chapter 9. Verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea. The land beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the nations. Saying that the people who walked in darkness have now seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So when God is with the nations, write this down, light will shine in the darkness. By the way, this passage, I think we even referenced it a couple of weeks ago. This is another passage that when you read your New Testament, Matthew quotes this about Jesus and says, that in Israel, for the good of all nations, that all the people who dwelled in darkness have now seen a great light. And they saw a great light because who had showed up? Jesus had. And the light shone in the darkness. And here's what is said about that light. Look at verse 6. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder... And his name should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the second promise there is that a son will be born to rule justly forever. Forever. Where will, where will this son rule from? Whose throne will he sit on? The throne of David. So from Jerusalem he will reign, but his reign won't just be over Jerusalem, it'll be over what? The whole world. Of the increase of his reign, there will be no end. It will continually be increasing forever and ever. So it may be that even through what we've read tonight, maybe you've seen God's greatness, maybe you've seen His holiness, His glory in a way that you haven't before tonight. 
If that's the case, we want to help you experience what Isaiah did. If you if you're not sure that you know the Lord, if you've not sure if you're not sure you've had that kind of experience uh, with Him personally, that your sins are forgiven, talk to your leaders tonight. Uh, we would love to to be able to help you think about that and to know for sure that your sins can be taken care of. Let's pray. Father, now as we divide up and we talk through these things in groups, Lord, help us first of all just to rejoice and be glad that you have come to meet with us on a personal level. That through Jesus, God has come to be with us. And and Lord, we uh, need Him to be our Savior. We cannot save ourselves. And Lord, we look forward to the day when Jesus will indeed sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem and will rule from there forever and we will be under his reign. So Lord, we pray to be faithful until that day uh, just as Isaiah was to speak. Lord, we know people will not always listen to your truth but we want to be faithful to proclaim it nonetheless. So we pray you'll help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.